When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode 90 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm in surprisingly sunny London town with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And uh, zooming in from Somerset, meanwhile, is our special guest, John Harris. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me. For anyone out there who doesn't read The Guardian, John has become one of the paper's most respected voices. He's anywhere but Westminster videos, which I think are 10 years old this year, are essential viewing. But John has a murky past some of you may be unaware of. Yes, he was once a music journalist, and he also wrote the definitive history of Britpop in the 90s. So we are going to talk to him about that time, quite possibly about... Britpop's relationship with Brexit, and we'll hear clips from a 1980 audio with Paul McCartney, and we'll be saying goodbye to Charlie Pride. First, John, where did musical obsession start for you? Really, it started, I can remember it, it started when I was five years old, when the babysitter, who was one of my mum's friends, my mum must have been at work, I think she'd just gone back to work, she put Sergeant Pepper on and gave me a copy of it. And I can remember hearing Within You, Without You. That's like one of my first memories. I must have been four or five. And as you can imagine, thinking, wow, what is this? This is quite something, isn't it? You know. And in my head, I don't know whether this is me sort of projecting it onto the memory after the fact, but it was like everything was, it must have been a sunny day. Everything was like sunshine and these Indian instruments and that sort of gliding vocal. And she also gave me the cutouts to play with. So I remember either her or me cut out the cardboard moustache and the stripes and all that, and that that was it, really. She hadn't spiked your tea with acid, had she? <laughs> no, no. It was, it's quite <laughs> That's your story, Mark. It's quite a psychedelic <laughs> memory in its own way. I think I was generating my own hallucinogen slightly. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same, Mark Lewis and the Beatles expert, in Philip Norman's book, Shout, it, it as the memory of him in 67. I mean, I wasn't born in 67. But Mark Lewison jumping up and down with the cardboard moustache clipped under his nose, which is pretty much what happened to me. <laughs> and then within about a year or two years, when the fa- we, our family was quite late getting a record player, but I would go down the public library every week and get Beatles records out initially, 25p for two weeks. When they used to have little cards inside them with drawings of the record, and if they got scratched, the librarian would draw where the scratch was. <laughs> like a diagram in biro. Like a car insurance form, yeah. Yeah, and then once once the whole thing started to look like a bike wheel, they'd sell them. You could buy, you could buy heavily scratched records by all sorts of weird people. 
the horse lips and Van de Graaff generator. And I remember these being in the in this box at Wilmslow Library. You could buy records as well. So I was I was off then, and it was the Beatles kind of first, and still is really. That's been with me all the time. But that's when it started. I used to have a little, and then music writing wise, when I was I was quite a weird kid, eight or nine years old. I had this Beatles fanzine. <laughs> called Beatle Monthly that I used to write myself and make and make up interviews with the 1970s Beatles and cut pictures of them out from the music papers and print stick them down and all that. So it was pretty obvious. It was pretty <laughs> obvious fantastic. in retrospect where all of that was going. Just don't happen. <laughs> I don't actually, I'm not a kind of hoarder and my parents are pretty exacting with all that and don't seem to have much of a sentimental streak at all. So I have no, there is no, there are no extant copies of Beatles Monthly. It would have been a great, it great really artifact. Would. It really would. <laughs> You went to Oxford. I did. Like actually, more than a few music journalists. It turns out they they all get outed in the end, me included. But so I know <laughs> that you, for example, we did a Radiohead anthology a couple of years ago, and there was I think one or maybe two pieces on Radiohead from that time. You and so was the first music writing you did while you were there, John. Well, in order to go to Oxford University. Because I, I had one go at getting in, which didn't work. And then my A-level results were as good as they were predicted to be. So I was, it was suggested that I gamble what was then called a year out. It wasn't called a gap year. On applying again. So I had this very strange year, age 18, where I didn't really do much. But one of the things that I did do during that time was all when so-called Baggy and Manchester and all that was happening, which was a very exciting time. We'll come on to talk about Britpop in a minute, but I, I I think that point around Acid House and what that did for guitar music and so on was much more exciting and interesting than Britpop probably was. Yeah. But I went to see Happy Mondays play at the famous Hacienda where I used to go a lot in Manchester. And I wrote an archetypal unsolicited review and sent it to Sounds magazine. Oh, Sounds, of course. For younger listeners, if there are any, that was one of the... Well, that was one of the... <laughs> That was cheeky. That was that was one of the th- anyone listening who doesn't know that there were four music weeklies in existence at that point, which there were. Sounds was one of them, and Sean Phillips, who's now a commissioning editor at the Times, who then was the reviews editor, he phoned me up when I arrived at Oxford. There was a that review must have sat. You know, I sent it type. It was typed on a typewriter. So it must have sat in a pile for three or four months, and then he phoned me up and he said, "This is good. You know, do you want to write about stuff for us?" So I ended up doing a live review a week and then quite quickly moved on to features. But I was based in Oxford at that point, which by an absolute stroke of luck was when this thing, which they've subsequently made a film about called Anyone Can Play Guitar. There's a feature length documentary about the Oxford music scene of the early nineties. And just by absolute happenstance, I was around. And so were Radiohead, who at that point were called on a Friday. It's to my shame, really, that Ed O'Brien, the guitar player, sent me a letter on, on a Friday note paper asking me to come and see him, and I pretty much ignored it, and I didn't actually go and see him until they'd been signed by EMI. But they were still they were still called, because the name was so awful. Yeah. I just thought, on a Friday, that's going to be crap. <laughs> <laughs> and they were still called on a Friday, but the, the late and much-missed Philip Hall, who was doing their press, he phoned me up and he said, look, I think he probably said, look, I know the name's crap, but they're good. And I went to see them up the Cowley Road at, a place which was then called the Co-op Hall, and it was the work social club for the Co-op, I went to see On a Friday play, and I reviewed that for the Melody Maker and suggested they change their name, and they did. Brilliant. There is a parallel universe, of course, in which Radiohead are still called On a Friday (laughs) and probably still playing, you know, pubs on the the Cowley Road. No, I think they'd have been all right. I think they'd have been all right. Because people forget that, that being called Radiohead was not the key to instant success. Their first run of singles sold fuck all. 
So do you know what I mean? I think yeah. I think in the end the 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 brilliance would have would have been all right. Most successful groups have terrible names. <laughs> so you actually, John, wrote for like practically all the weeks yeah, at one yeah, time did. or other, didn't you? I did. And you yeah. ended up on NME. Yeah. And were one of the you know the main feature writers there. And then you became editor of Select in yeah. nineteen ninety-five. I did I done ninety six. Ninety six. 96. Yeah. So I want to particularly talk to you. I'm interested in the relationship, in a sense, between Select and Britpop for obvious reasons. So two years before you became, or three years before editor, that famous cover with Brett Anderson Suede and the Union Jack. Tell me your your memories of kind of how we got to – there's a great piece of the three pieces we're featuring on the homepage. There's there's a piece, one of them – alludes to Suede accidentally inventing Britpop. How's it, when you look back, how did Britpop happen? How was it born? Well, so the first thing that happened really was what I made reference to a moment ago, which was Acid House and what that did for guitar music, which isn't really the main story. The main story is about electronic dance music mm. and what happened there. But that was quite an, uh, that was really the end of the 80s. So everything the 80s had represented in various different ways in terms of pop culture, all that sort of stopped really with Acid House. So you know, you were no longer wearing a, a second-hand suit jacket that you bought from Affleck's Palace in Manchester with the Smiths T-shirt underneath it and Doc Martin's shoes. I mean, in my head, everything changed within weeks. Suddenly you had trousers that were 30 inches wide at the bottom and red shoes. My mother said she wouldn't walk down the street with me in that period because I looked like a clown. That's a direct... <laughs> <laughs> That's... <laughs> That's a direct quote. And that was great, you know, Happy Monday, Stone Roses, Acid House. I went to Spike Island, the famous Stone Roses concert and all that. And that gave you this sense, really, of music from the sort of evening Radio 1 college circuit, independent end of things. That had crossed over into the mainstream. Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses were having top 10 records and playing to thousands of people and all that. And that that moment, certainly in terms of rock music, it just ended really, really quickly. The Stone Roses went into litigation with the record company. Happy Mondays had all sorts of drug problems. The Hacienda got taken over by Mancunian gangs. I mean, the whole thing got pretty ugly and awful pretty quick. And then you got this lull sort of between, what, 90, 91, 92 and early 94 where – in those days, you know, the pendulum would swing. It's not like in Spotify world where it's very hard to sort of construct narratives about where musical energy is located because you can listen to so much. But in those days, it was like, well, what's the new thing? And, and therefore, what's the old thing? And the new thing was America, right? And that was quite exciting. You know, I saw Nirvana play with Smashing Pumpkins the night before Nevermind came out at the Axis Club in Boston. And all that was a tremendously thrilling thing to be around. But things at home were pretty quiet, you know. Mm. Yes. Shoegaze, which is now, that's now hip, right? If you go on Bandcamp, there's now a whole category of called shoegaze, you know, but yes. that was a that was a term of derision yes. for these slightly, <laughs> these. I mean, I think they got a bad rap, actually, because I now go back to a lot of that music, and it's pretty good, you know, but Slow Dive and Chapter House and Revolver and all that, Ride were the, by far the, the better end of all that. That was about as good as it got, really. Yes. And there were terrible things around, like rap metal was in its pomp yes. at that point how many records can you listen to that go eh, digga, 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 eh, digga, digga, digga. it's not yes. nice <laughs> so in the in the midst of of this kind of lull in britain 
by sort of the autumn of 1993, it was pretty obvious that a sort of new wave of groups were coming along who had something in common with the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and what had happened two or three years before, but were very sort of pop-orientated. And just as a sort of generational thing, they had grown up listening in the first instance to the sort of later bits of punk rock, the jam in particular. Pistols were usually a big thing in their lives because they'd have listened to that when they were eight or nine years old. The Smiths were a touchstone for that generation of musicians, and they were trying to sort of do something akin to that themselves. And along came what I would call the first wave of Britpop groups. This is accepting Oasis and what came after them. So Suede in the first instance, Blur, who had been a sort of cod baggy group and had, had then embraced the influence of the Kinks and Sid Barrett era Floyd and all that. Pulp, who'd been around for quite a long time, but seemed to fit. I mean, even the, the auteurs, Luke Haynes's group, the sort of, reluctantly roped into that. St. Etienne, I think, in that issue of Select Magazine, yeah. were part of this new mood. There was definitely a sort of self-consciously English, Ray Davis social comment, little bit of early Bowie, kind of turn to, to what was happening. And it was better than listening to rap metal and the worst of shoegazing. So people like me greeted it enthusiastically. I mean, it's really interesting, the pieces that were featured. I mentioned that all of them in different ways talk about the Union Jack, the sort of somehow the, the kind of this new appropriation of the Union Jack, which up to that point had, you know, become a symbol of something that, that pop music wasn't particularly proud of. I mean, you think about Morrissey brandishing the Union Jack yeah, yeah. at that at that Madstock show, I think it was. Yeah, and and but suddenly it's okay. And then you know Liam and Patsy are lying in bed with the Union Jack, covering them on the cover of Vanity Fair, and so on and so forth. And I mean, I remember at that time. I mean, I was already like too old to be a kind of reactive pop consumer, but I remember just thinking, I understand this is a reaction to. As John Savage puts it, there's a, it's a sort of reaction to grunge and techno and the things that you've you've described so well. But I remember just thinking, well, I couldn't really understand what, what this is about. And it seemed to be, by the time Oasis came, it just seemed quite crude and crass. But I don't know. What do you feel now, looking back? I think there was inevitably, because we're talking about pop culture here, there was a sort of knowing camp aspect to it. Right. And that was partly a revivalist thing because everyone had seen Pete Townsend with the Union Jack on his amplifier. Everyone's seen those archive photographs. Yeah. You know, and British pop art of that period had sort of toyed with the flag quite a lot. I mean, I suppose that you can you can argue that elements of that sort of blurred into Edwardian or whatever you call it. Granny takes a trip and mm-hmm. some of that stuff that was sitting under the sort of Sergeant Pepper era Beatles yeah, yeah. and all of that stuff. 66, you know, the England England team winning the World Cup and somehow that having something to do with how great pop music was at that point. So there was quite a lot of that. And I think also people just didn't want all that kind of anxiety and prickliness surrounding those symbols to be there anymore. It's just sort of, look, it's just a flag, who cares? And it was quite an interesting turnabout. When I first started working at the, my first week in the office at the NME was the week that, they ran that cover story about Morrissey 
in the parlance of the time, flirting with right-wing imagery. That's what you called it, right? Dele Fidele's article, which was... Dele's yeah. really brilliant article. Yeah. I mean, it, there was more to it than the flag. In that case, that was also about some of the songs he was writing and use of skinhead imagery and yeah. all the rest of it. But it, it was quite a weird kind of striking turnabout that so much upset had been caused by that. And yet, what, less than two years later? Yeah. It was all okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that people read both things correctly. You know, that I think you can, you can, you can wave the flag in a, in a legitimate sort of way, and you can wave it in an illegitimate sort of way. And I think what Morrissey was doing was recognisably dubious in a way. What's that, the legitimate way to wave the flag? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, well, you know, not to get into kind of bogged down to political argument about it, but the fact is that it seemed. The Britpop adoption of the Union Jack seemed far more innocent, inherently innocent, mm. than, than Morris's adoption of it. Mm. Well, it was quite jingoistic. Was quite jingoistic, wasn't it? Or at least it, it was jingoistic. Quite... It was jingoistic as regards America, chiefly. Yes. Yeah. Yanks I mean, we can home. we can have yeah. a we can have a conversation, and it it is striking looking back about how white Britpop was, right? Yeah. And I think that was clearly to its detriment and probably why it burned out so quickly was it drew on such a limited range of references, right? Mm. And inevitably then, the use of the flag, probably by modern standards, was always going to jangle nerves and it's kind of right that it did. Mm. But most of the jingoism was directed in in America's direction. Yes. And to go home, you know, and if you watch Britpop now, which is not that great really, it was an episode of Later with Jules Holland which um, was constructed to sort of showcase Britpop, although it's got PJ Harvey in it for some reason. It, it's, <laughs> it's not quite right. But there's a Damon Albarn was the presenter of that, and he says, he basically tells the story in terms of, this is all about rejecting the influence of, of America, and it's time the British voice was heard and all of that, right? Yeah. And that's what, it, that's what it was about, you know? Yes, yes. And I think that in that sense, there was a playful aspect to it, the flag waving, and there was a belligerent aspect, but the mm-hmm. the belligerent aspect was about America. Right. It was about, you know, and it, it, some of it, in retrospect, is a little bit distasteful. I mean, don't forget that what really spelled the end of so-called grunge was Kurt Cobain's suicide. I mean, there's one week in 1994 when the death is announced of Kurt Cobain and Supersonic by Oasis comes out, and within about three weeks, Park Life is released, and that's when the turnabout happened. Right. So, so the end of that American influence is, you know, it's not just a matter of the pendulum swing. It's also about the fact that the, the figurehead of grunge killed himself, you know. So it's all of it's quite weird and awkward. But that's why it was good to write a book about. Sure. Because they're all amazing stories. And and, and big, although Britpop seemed very sort of giddy and, and frivolous and superficial, what was going on underneath it very often was quite dark and deep and weird, you know. The Kurt Cobain thing for a start. And then secondly, the fact that an inordinate number of the musicians involved then became heroin addicts, you know. So... Yes, the story the story is quite is quite layered and weird and worth going into. You know, it does it's it's not it's not all just la di da. Let's go for a pint of lager. John, when did you start thinking about writing what became the last party? To give it its full subtitle, original subtitle: Britpop Blair and the Demise of English Rock. I believe that became the spectacular demise of English Rock. It did, the American in, edition. In the American said edition. That. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start thinking about about the book? Oh, quite early on. I reckon in about probably like I wrote the book in 2001, 2002. And I think sort of when it was obvious that the whole thing was over. So that was by 98, 99. I think I'd started to think about the idea that there was a book in it and sort of write reams of sort of 
bad Ian McDonald guess prose about the meaning of its songs and all that. I wasn't really thinking in terms of the human stories. And I think I think when I initially I went to see a publisher with my, with my agent, I said, oh, this book needn't have any interviews in it. I thought it was going to be a, a sort of theoretical book of purple prose. And, of course, that was, uh, was entirely wrong. And once I started talking to people, I just thought, wow, of mm. course, this is a story yes. about about the rise and fall of 15 people in London. <laughs> yes. Also, the, the, in the subtitle, Britpop Blair. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've been politically engaged for a long time, and you, you still are as a, as a journalist. I'd, yeah, yeah. So, so, so say. Uh, I noticed your, your Wikipedia entry says that you failed to get into your, your first attempt at Oxford yeah. because you were a member of the wrong political groupings. That's correct. Uh, uh, what were those political groupings? Oh, well, I was a fool. I was a Catholic-educated lefty, and I applied to an Anglican conservative college. I was obviously well advised. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, broadly speaking, I had a Labour Party upbringing. I, you know, nothing very freakish, but I had a Labour Party upbringing. My my grandfather on my father's side was a South Wales coal miner, so it's sort of you know you haven't got much choice in your politics when when well, that's in there. You know, that's something in very different ways we have in common. I was kind of weaned on the tits of the Labour Party at all intents and purposes. But Blair, I mean, actually, to kind of hook that together is actually my father was the man who recruited Tony Blair to the Labour Party. Ah, uh, so now we <laughs> <laughs> We named the guilty men. But, Blimey. Um, Good heavens, that's like Back to the Future when, when, <laughs> when, he, when the photo starts fading away, isn't it? That's really quite a thing. So, so how did you view the Blair administration as a, as a sort of, not exactly an aside, as a semi-aside? How oh you... no, there's a quiet story there which is very Britpoppy really. So before they got into government you know, they were around. This is easy to forget, right? Mm-hmm. That, that most of the Britpop period, if not all of it, happened when John Major was the Prime Minister, yeah. right? So Tony Blair was around again. You know, there's another tragic death in the midst of all this around the same time as Kurt Cobain dies in ni- John Smith. Spring 94, John Smith dies. Yeah, and yeah. Tony Blair becomes the leader, right? So he was around and they, and they weren't stupid, right? Him and his people were obviously extremely culturally attuned yeah. to what was going on and this sense of, you know, this rising mood of confidence and the new swing in London and all of that, as was the major government, incidentally. I mean, mm-hmm. the first time Cool Britannia was on a government press release was when Virginia Bottomley, a now obscure conservative <laughs> politician or former conservative politician, was the culture secretary, right? So all of this was around. But Blair was able, I think they nicked this from Bill Clinton, to position himself as the first representative of the sort of rock and roll generation to have a shot at high political office. So he was photographed pretending to play a Fender Stratocaster. <laughs> he, he'd been in this group, Ugly Rumours, at Oxford University. Again, Oxford. Everything, <laughs> everything wrong with the world is because of Oxford University. <laughs> apart from the vaccine. Apart from the vaccine. The vaccine is a, is a late bit of redemption, right? But So t- <laughs> Tony, Tony Blair had been at, at Oxford with Mark Allen, who, who Barney and I, both worked with uh, EMAP. He was uh, one of the top brass at the magazine division involved in Mojo and Q and Select and all that. And they'd been in this band that played Long Train Running with the Doobie Brothers and I think <laughs> All Right Now by Free. I didn't even know that, John. That's brilliant. Long Train Running. Yeah, yeah. And Paul Rogers, not unreasonably, is Tony Blair's favourite vocalist. So he had all this rock and roll pedigree and could talk yeah. reasonably knowledgeably and apparently he was hell of a frontman. I mean, there's a bit in the book where Mark Allen recounts Tony Blair coming along to a, a, an Ugly Rumours rehearsal. And like all crap student rock bands, all they're doing is thrashing away. 
And Tony Blair says, no, 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 dynamics, right? You need a loud bit, then a quiet bit, and then the build-up, which is not the way politics works, really. Right? Same <laughs> idea. <laughs> so he was able to really say, look, I was a long hair, and he turned up at the Q Awards two years running yeah. and befriended Alan McGee from creation and all that. And they were clever, you know, as against the 1980s when musicians had got involved in Labour politics via Red Wedge. Yeah, yeah. The, the sort of political musicians collective, which as a punter was really great. I went to the first Red Wedge concert in Manchester and it was an amazing thing. The problem was the musicians were quite shouty and uppity then. They wanted a say, you know, they wanted a bit of influence. But Tony Blair was just like, well, all you're here for is the photo ops and, you know, you can come and drink gin and sonic with me at the House of Commons. And both sides were relatively happy with their side of the bargain. And that was that. And he was a Britpop thing for a bit. And when they when he took office, when they won in 1997, which was an ecstatic event, it was amazing mm-hmm. to watch the Tories lose, right? Select Magazine used to have this thing in the middle, this pullout of stuff you could blue tack on your wall. And in my lunacy, I put a picture of Tony Blair with a, with a gilt frame around it, like as a pullout thing. And do you know what? We didn't get a single letter of complaint. It was that was just the nature of the moment, really. It was, that was it was just another crazy Britpop day. <laughs> Wave your flag, get drunk, you know, go down wh- wherever's the latest fashionable place in London. Everything's just a big giggle. Yes. That's just people forget, you know, that no one was thinking very deeply about anything at that point. Mm. It was just every day was a was a scream or a hangover or both, you know, and that was kind of it. It's interesting reading the last of the three pieces, which is a select piece from 1999 by Stuart McConey. It's essentially a conversation with Blur, but it's called The Death of the Party, or The Death of a Party. So yeah, it's really yeah. about, it's about the kind of how, you know, how Britpop crumbled. And it's particularly interesting hearing Graham Coxon talk about his disenchantment with, you know, what Blur were about around the time of Country House, which, of course, beat Oasis to number one, as we all know. And he's talking about, you know, how he was going out with Joe from Huggy Bear. And he found the whole, he really, he was really turned off by the laddism of it all, as was I, I have to say. And then, so of course, he's listening to Pavement. I mean, he says at one point, you know, he's listening to Pavement when they're making The Great Escape and, and his bandmates are all sneering at him. But that turned into song two, and, yeah. and by then, and by then, Britpop really was was a goner, wasn't it? Woohoo! Woohoo! Yeah, yeah, but it didn't half limp on. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you've got to realise. I mean, Barney, you will know this, right? If you're working in music publishing, and not not, I don't mean publishing songs. I mean music magazines, right? as against music journalism, because the two things are different, right? Being a writer is quite different from being involved on the editorial side. Because once you're on the editorial side, it becomes all about what was last month's sales figure and, you know, how's your budget looking and, you know, what's your pagination and all of this stuff, you know. And it was obvious, although no one had... Select Magazine hadn't been conceived as the Britpop magazine. No. It had been invented, weirdly, by the same publisher as Sounds. Wasn't Tony Stewart had something to do with it? Yeah, in 1990 when the late and much Miss David Kavanagh was involved with it. Yeah. And it was a bit more like Q, really. 
And then what happened was it sort of found its voice, really, when what we now know as Britpop came around the corner. But by a mixture of accident and design, and because that's what music magazines do, they often attach themselves to these things, to genres or upsurges or whatever you call them. So Select had really attached itself to this thing. And of course, you know, if it shows any signs of decline, you don't want to see that. It's Mm -hmm. like, you must carry on. This is the key to my daily work in life and this scream of of an existence that I'm having in London, you know, at a time, let's not forget, when you could live in London as a a young music writer, you know, you could live the life of Riley. Mm. So no one really wanted it to finish. And so as either artists sort of fell off the ship so in other words their records would go in i mean the charts were so fetishized and important at this point if your record went in at 29 you were a goner you know if you weren't if you weren't having a new entry in the top 15 i don't think you couldn't get a cover unless you were in the top 10 the whole thing was mad you know you'd walk into it i remember walking in music magazine offices and saying have you heard this this is a good record and someone would say oh it's midweeks only 22 and you'd say, I didn't say anything about it's midweek. I said it was a good record. <laughs> and the whole thing had gone, right? So the point was, groups started to fall off. And then people started making bad records. So that third Oasis album, I can remember. I mean, this is how gone I was, right? Noel Gallagher, I remember going to Music Bank Rehearsal Studios in Bermondsey to interview them for a cover, right? And Noel Gallagher told me the record wasn't very good, right? <laughs> Which I hadn't heard it. I wasn't allowed to hear it. But he told me it's not very good. And he went through it and he said, this song isn't much cop, really. And this one's like a crap version of Wonderwall. And I was going, no, no, it's going to be brilliant. It's great. You're great. The record's great. Everything's great. No, no, it's not very good. Shut up. You know. <laughs> he, just, he just made it. He was, if anyone was going to know, it was crap, right? So it, everybody was reluctant to say, look, this is finished. And then the end of it was really revealed by the fact that your magazine sales started to slide and you were in a position of putting groups that you knew weren't much cop on the cover. And God bless them, but I didn't think the Stereophonics were the band of the year and I went freelance. I noticed your book was published in 2003, which is, of course, the year the Iraq War broke out. Yeah. Which I think for many of us, I mean, I left the party then. I've been a member since 74, and that's when I first left the Labour Party, subsequently rejoined. (laughs) So you've written this book, and Blair's is part of it. And then effectively what Blair stood for, for so many of us, as a progressive political leadership, was besmirched by this ghastly event. Yeah. I mean, how, how how did you see that? Well, I wrote a book about it on the back of all that. The book after the last part is a yeah. is a book so called "So Now Who Do We Vote For," yeah. which was a, which was a, a book for disillusioned Labour voters, right? And I was definitely a disillusioned Labour voter by then. But it set in pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, in, in retrospect, but the standards of the ten years of austerity we got from twenty ten onwards, and let alone the experience of being run by the clowns we've got now, <laughs> the new Labour period. If it's possible to take Iraq out of it, which I'm not sure it is. Yeah. But domestically, you know, my son was born in a newly built hospital and the the secondary school where I went 
in Cheshire was completely rebuilt to the point of being unrecognisable and all of this stuff, you know. Yes. No, I, I, so I, 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 I think agree. I think it's easy to be disillusioned with it, and some of that disillusion was inevitable. But Iraq, Iraq was hell of a thing. But the whole process, the political process leading up to Iraq, went back quite a long way. So if you want to know when I started to feel, oh God, what's all this? It was in 1998 when they, I think they were trying to enforce no fly zones in Iraq, and there was a bombardment of Iraq, and there was a candlelit vigil on Whitehall. And I went, and I remember standing there with a candle, surrounded by people who didn't like Tony Blair. And I was thinking, God, that was quick. <laughs> One year. Do you know what I mean? A year ago, I was putting him in the bit of the magazine you stick on your wall, and here I am, <laughs> here I am, protesting against him. That's a bit weird, isn't it? John, what took you into political journalism in in the first place? What, when, when did you make the leap? It'd always been there, really. Right. I mean, I I cut my teeth as a, a reader of music journalism terrifically passionate, like most writers, you know. I mean, I'm a creature of the weekly music press, you know. Yeah. Was I bought the NME in the 80s? And as you will know, Barney, because I was probably reading things you'd written, politics was streaked through it. I mean, some weeks you'd buy it, and it, was, it, it felt like you had to try hard to find the music in it. When it would have <laughs> Neil Kinnock on the front, or the, do you remember the famous uh, Paolo's piece about vivisection, which had two yeah. monkeys in cages on I mean, yeah. You know, where's yeah, the Smiths? So, where's, sales where's the were Smiths? declining precipitously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where have the Smiths gone? Where's, where's Age of Chance? What's going on here? Where's the Mighty Lemon Drops? So it was just part of the culture. I mentioned Red Wedge a moment ago. That was a big thing. I was from a political household. There was a little resurgence of that as well, just before Britpop, when the BNP, the British National Party, were sort of a thing again. They they got a council seat on the Isle of Dogs and there were there was a big... Uh, the Anti-Nazi League was revived and there was a big anti-Nazi carnival. I think that was in Victoria Park in Hackney where the one yeah. in seven, 70, yeah. 78 had been. And the enemy had really, under Steve Sutherland, to his credit, had, um, had thrown its weight behind that. And so I was writing anti-fascist features and all that. So it had always been there. But I suppose I've... It's in the nature of music writing, or certainly was then, that you felt like you were in a hurry, you know. And I, I sort of thought, well, I can't, I don't really want to be going to gigs five days a week anymore. And it'd be nice to at least partly write about something else. But I've never stopped writing about music. No. Cover story no. mojo. This month I've written. Oh. I'll have you know. Well, there we go. John, it's been brilliant talking to you about your career. You know, more power to you. I really love your films. I find them really just a sort of corrective to the kind of insular bubble nature of of Westminster discourse just to to be on the ground of just talking to to people it's very moving and refreshing very depressing thank you very much it is very depressing Um, you want to try you want to try making them (laughs) (laughs) I I mean you know it's it's very valuable what you're doing is documenting the realities of the post-industrial north which is yeah yeah not just the industrial north I mean we don't you know we we we, we were make films Keynes in and, the other day. We, make, we, we like Milton St. Albans, St. Albans. We might Milton Keynes. No, Milton Keynes. Yeah. We've got a thing about Milton Keynes. I really like Milton Keynes. Where they make Marshall amps, incidentally. Huh. Right. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, you know, I'm still down the bull and gate, aren't I, really? There's <laughs> <laughs> someone else is on the transatlantic flight to interview Nick Cave in Rio de Janeiro, and I'm watching Roller Skate Skinny upstairs at the garage. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> it's always the way. Yeah. It's time to talk about another kind of aspect of Britpop, really, which is the ancestry of it. The Beatles being the, the major yeah, kind yeah. of template for Oasis and Company. It just so happens that tomorrow, as you know, John, Paul McCartney is releasing the third in a series of, of albums. One was McCartney. The second was McCartney 2, and tomorrow it's McCartney 3. We happen to have a short interview with Paul McCartney when McCartney 2 is coming out in 1980, 40 years ago, and Mark is going to tell us a bit about <laughs> Macca. Yeah, it's, it's, it's John Tober and others. and I believe it's the launch party for McCartney 2, which takes place at Abbey Road Studios. <laughs> so it's, it's John and a couple of others. And, and you know, McCartney... It's odd. He he can be re- remarkably boring. You know, he, 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 he's sort of, he's a bit laboured and all that. We'll play a clip now. He's, he talks about basically this album, he recorded everything himself. Aside from his wife, Linda, contributing a bit of vocals here and there, it's all Paul. And yes. let's hear what, what he has to say. Playing on my own like that is something like I did in the, an album called McCartney. Uh, and I did that just for a sort of experiment to see if I could do it. And so I think it's about something like seven or ten years since I've done this new one. And it's just a way I like to work. Uh, you could say it recharges my batteries, but um, it just gives me kind of fresher ideas, you know, because I'm able to just put it down straight out of my own head onto the tape. So it's a way I like working, and uh, yeah, hopefully it's recharging something anyway. I mean, both Barney and I listened to that album yesterday, Curious Stuff. I've never listened to it before. I was aware of uh, Coming Up, which was a hit single off it. It's a very weird-sounding record, McCartney 2. Quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. And we, just before we started the podcast, Jasper and Barney and I were discussing, and Barney pointed out that there's almost a cr- kind of a Kraftwerk influence in yeah, a yeah. couple of tracks and things like that. We'll play another clip now, which is uh, really follows straight on. It's how many instruments does he play? Because, of course, he's the person who John Lennon's mocking remark about Ringo not being the best drummer in the Beatles. Yeah, and this is John Tober asking the question. Right? Yes. He's one of a few people sitting there with Macca. How many instruments can you play proficiently? I don't know, really. I don't count it up, but uh, started off originally on the trumpet, which I really can't play, because I gave that up. Absolutely terrible on that. But then I went to guitar, which I've been playing now, I think it's about 20 years, so I ought to have learned something on that. And then I played bass after that, and I played some piano and keyboard stuff. That's mainly what I play, and drums. Uh, I just like bashing around on drums. It's just something I enjoy. But So I suppose like four or five proficiently, and the rest awkwardly. Elsewhere in the interview, as I said, it's only about a quarter of an hour long. He he alludes to the state of Wings, who were actually about to fall to pieces completely. I think they broke up finally the following year. Yeah, April 81 was the death knell. He defends titling a song Frozen Jap. 
Oh my god, this bit. I was really just like, he comes off such a prat because he's like, oh, I feel like it's been a bit diffused by the Japanese person that uses the name for his shop. I know. Ignoring the fact that the person that's using the name for his shop is Japanese and maybe mm. gets to reclaim it in a way that McCartney doesn't. <laughs> and then it's the classic, I don't mean it in a bad way. Oh, I know, he wouldn't get away with it now. It really makes you cringe. Listen John, to what's me. your take on on solo Maka? I mean, you. I think you said before we started recording this episode that you uh, you you've, in advance you've got McCartney three so i don't know if you had a yeah, chance yeah. to listen to it. but what, what is your take on paul mccartney as a solo artist i find with mccartney as a solo artist that there's always enough of this sort of i don't know how to describe this without sounding cliched really sort of quirky home-baked mm-hmm. willfully quite strange sort of aesthetic going on to keep you interested i mean i quite like mccartney when he just goes straight rock you know i like junior's farm and jet and Band on the Run and all those things. Yeah. But the parts of his catalogue that I get the most satisfaction from are the ones that almost, in retrospect, just seem to sort of lay the ground for the Beta Band and the Green Man Festival and Beck and that whole sort of let's get a port studio and smoke a load of weed and see what comes into our head, you know. And there are elements of the first of McCartney McCartney that are like that which I think are really, really great, as much as there's good so- good songs on it, like Maybe I'm Amazed and Every Night and all that. And McCartney 2 is really, really like that. I mean, it's it, nowadays, you'd call it a parenthetical record. It's not <laughs> It's not part of it, which I think you too invented that when they brought Zuropa out. You know what I mean? It's not, it's, not part, it's not meant to be considered as necessarily as in the run of his other records. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a diversion, right? Yes. I think there are songs on, on there which are great. I mean, coming up, the single is really good. That's what... Yeah. The, persuaded John Lennon to start making music again, sort of fired up his competitive spirit. Waterfalls, the ballad is really, really great. But the weird stuff on it, there's a track on it called On The Way, which is like a sort of weird blues pastiche soaked in echo. It's brilliant. And then if you get the on Spotify, the deluxe version, it's got a B-side of the 12... And this is how my Beatles anorak so <laughs> We're going down a wormhole here, aren't we? No, you're not. Like it's it. a good wormhole, right? So temp- Temporary Secretary, which is very influenced by Talking Heads. You can hear the Talking Heads influence in that, right? The B-side of the 12-inch of that is called Secret Friend. It's ten and a half minutes long. I put it on in the select office in 1998 or something, and they all thought it was like a Balearic record from eight years before. <laughs> it's like Paul McCartney invents Acid House about nine years too early. <laughs> and that's all, all that stuff's always going on. So I think yeah. it's, he's all right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you have to kind of, you know, you have to fill it the stuff out, but it, there's always rewarding stuff there, always. And, and the latest record, McCartney 3, is really, really like that. You know, is it? On this audio, there's, they're playing Temporary Secretary in the background as this launch party, and it sounds really weird. It sounds almost like, I don't, you know, for those of us who have experienced the ketamine effect, it's like this extraordinary, repetitive <laughs> thing. Are you saying like, you have, or you, well, you heard it from someone? Yeah, I, 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 I heard it from someone else completely. It's very, very strange. It's like, it's like a sort of deja vu. Every time you, you keep hearing this line, temporary secretary, and it's got this weird disembodied deja vu feel about it. Yeah, yeah. It's a very interesting record. It was a big, it was revived round about the time, immediately after Britpop, there was something called Electro Clash. Yeah. Yes. Which was when Brick Lane and, and where the rough trade shop is now in East London was that everything shifted from sort of West and North London East. Mm-hmm. Chicks on Speed and Gonzales and all that stuff. And there was a, quite a lot of it came out of Berlin, that music. And it was sort of electronic but in a very sort of camp, ironic, almost retro way. And Temporary Secretary was a big record for some of those people. Right. So there you go. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, 
it's always sort of recontextualized and it never goes away. Now, I was surprised. I mean, like I said, I didn't listen to it when it came out. I've become obsessed with black music by that point. I wasn't listening to white rock. But listening to it yesterday, I'm, you know, Barney said, will you listen to it again? Possibly not. But it was a very interesting experience listening to it. It wasn't like, no. you know, what I was afraid of, which would be like the sort of mawkish, sort of fairly bland side of... No, it's not like that at all. No, it really isn't. I really like Ram, I have to say. Yeah, that's my my favourite McCarthy record. Yeah, yeah, I really absolutely love that. But this is an interesting point in kind of McCartney's story, isn't it? Because it's, what, like three years away from the the awful mull of Kintyre, less than a year or a year and a bit away from the end of Wings, and also six years away from the launch of Q with McCartney on, on the cover. And there's an alternate timeline where instead for those seven years he's in prison in Japan for <laughs> yes, the aforementioned bunch of well, weed that's, that you're talking about. That's imme- that happens imme- I think that happens immediately after he records McCartney too, which is the most amazing, mind-boggling thing to read about is 10 days in Japanese prison. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> so is McCartney 3, I mean, I've not, I've not heard any of it yet. Is it really, does it follow a similar sort of approach, John? Yeah, not. I've only played it once, right? So it's not, you don't get an instant sense of, oh, this is like McCartney and McCartney 2. Right. But sort of broadly speaking, again, it's it's parenthetical. It's mm. sort of art for art's sake. Mm. And he's kind of going with sort of initial ideas and seeing where they take him. Yeah. Very often with, with songwriters, he's not alone in this. I mean, there are aspects of Neil Young's catalogue, for example, that are like this. Yes, cool. Where the whole point is, I'm, this isn't a masterpiece. I'm not writing Heart of Gold here, right? This isn't what this is. You know, I'm just going to take this riff or this lyric and and not worry about how many it's going to sell and see where it goes. You know, and I, I it mean, works. Exactly. It sort of works on it works on that level. It, it's kind of it's kind of interesting because it's forgotten how of all the four Beatles that McCartney was the artist in terms of what he was doing in his spare time, going to galleries and so on and so forth, and that. A lot of the creative juice behind Sergeant Pepper and to some extent the White Albums does stem from him, which is rather forgotten in the sort of the John Love, which has sort of, you know, come out since. And again, listening to McCartney too was actually more like listening to bits of the White Album than anything he did with Wings or anything like that. That this is an itch he every now and again has to scratch. Totally. And I like I, I like it. Totally. What like Wild Honey Pie. Yeah. And yeah. why don't we why don't we do it in the road? Exactly. Even like I Will, which is this lovely little song, which you barely, you know, it's sort of tucked away on the White Album and you have to find it, right? So there's that that kind of idea. Mm. And, acu- and usually there's an acoustic guitar in there somewhere. That's usually a sign that he's in that sort of mood. <laughs> yeah. Oasis did a version of Helter Skelter, even though they were ultimately Everyone's more done a version of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a terrible U2 version of Helter Skelter. Oh, God. Helter- I, don't want to, I don't even want to think about that. Helter Skelter uh, is a song that no, no one don't tempt Jasper to create a kind of Helter Skelter medley. Cue Helter Skelter montage. The song Charles Manson stole from the Beatles. We're still in the back. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. I do feel like leaping in at this moment with the very first item of what's coming up in the library or how it came in last week, which is mm-hmm. Ivor Davis meeting basically the Manson's family in December 69. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and yes. of course, Helter Skelter was part of Manson's entirely bogus reading of Beatles songs. It was indeed. Yeah, although Charlie Manson heard messages in Your Mother Should Know. I mean, that's going <laughs> in, isn't it? 
Yeah. <laughs> Certainly in Why Don't We you, Do It in the Road. Yeah. Who wrote, who wrote Hell's Skelter? I forgot his name. He's got an Italian surname. Victor Bugliosi. Yeah, yeah. So he yeah. goes in. I didn't realise this until I went back and read it. The Charlie Manson was here in Messages in Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah. I mean, good yeah, no, God. Exactly. And not I Am the Walrus, you know. <laughs> no. No, listen, we will be hearing a third and final clip from the Macca audio at the end. Yes. But we need to just scoot through a couple of other things that are free on the homepage. The featured writer is Gary Kenton, who is one of the original writers on Fusion magazine out of Boston. We've got a couple of great pieces from the 70s by him. One on early piece on Patsy Smith when Horses has just come out and a piece on the New York scene from early 77 where he meets the Ramones. He's great. He's got a new book about the history of rock and roll on television just out and it's a recent arrival on Rock's Back Page. He's really recommended his stuff, Gary Kenton. But we, we've we lost this week, we have lost the great and the almost unique Charlie Pride. Yeah. So we've got three pieces about Charlie, one from '67, John Abbey profiling him in Record Mirror, and then two, and then a piece by Gene Guerrero, who we've talked about, haven't we, Mark? Yes. Mark, yeah. tell us just just a little bit about what you know about Charlie Pride. Well, and- I, I mean, the, the obvious thing is the obvious thing is color of his skin. He was a yeah. black country singer, mm-hmm. very successful, selling to the white country audience. It's interesting because we had Kandia Crazy Horse in our last podcast, in which we talked quite extensively about how Southern blacks were as likely to love country music as to love gospel or soul, or quite possibly loving all three. And so he, he's an oddity in that respect. I mean, musically, he's, I don't think he's desperately interesting. I mean, you know, there's people like George Jones and people who I think that Barney, you and I would, you know, say we love. Charlie Pride is fairly bland, I think is the, the safe way of putting it. It must have been interesting for him being a black artist in the 60s and 70s. As he says, uh, said, John, signed by Chet Atkins, who signed a lot of people, actually. I mean, Chet Atkins' major role at RCA was as much as an A&R man as a guitar player or a producer. It's a curious anomaly, and we have to wait till Candy Crazy Horse's album to come out to kind of get the next black country singer. <laughs> I mean, there have been quite But you say that, Dom, but Ray, Ray Charles made a country album, did he? That's he true. Did. He yeah. did. But he was never positioned as a pure country singer, which... Which, but I think which, it's interesting what, what, was. what you said, that it does bring to the surface the fact that the musical culture of the South is immeasurably more mixed up Absolutely. than the more crass accounts give it credit for on, on both sides. So, yes. you know. Yeah. There are other oddities. People forget about this, but country music was massively popular in Jamaica of all places. Um, I remember when we went with my band, we went to Twitty City. We took a day off and went to Nashville. We were recording Muscle Shoals. Our black keyboard player, Robbie, went into Twitty City and came out with armfuls of Jim Reeves albums for his mum. You know, hardcore Jamaican. It, it, it's, it's, it's odd that, you know, we got, we, you have to sort of like just forget about some of the cliches about who's meant to be listening to what. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the, I mean, just recapping on Charlie Pride's story, what, given the current sort of nature of race relations in America right now, and indeed in the 60s. It's it's just as remarkable as Chet Atkins signing Charlie to RCA. It's the fact that Red Foley and Red Sovine happened to be passing through this little mining town, I believe, in Montana, where Charlie had had gone to to, to work, basically. And they heard him singing in a in a bar in Montana and this would have been like I don't know mid sixties, early mm-hmm. to mid sixties, and recommended that he go to Nashville. I mean, I find that quite sort of heartening. So yeah. I mean, I assume they, were, you know, that was quite bold. What you know, they, they were they were pillars of the country establishment. 
And they obviously thought, you know, this this guy can make it in Nashville. Yeah. And indeed, of course, did. He was huge. I mean, it's hard almost to believe now, actually. It's almost hard to believe that an African-American could become a country music superstar at that time. But he did. Wasn't it the case when he was on RCA, the only person who was selling more records was Elvis? Yeah, I think at one point. That's, I read that. Also, Chet Atkins knew what he was doing. He called he called signing Charlie Pride my greatest civic thing, right? <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Civic so he thing. knew that's in um. That's not. I don't. I found this by reading the brilliant Faber and Faber book in the country of country by Nicholas David of the my oh, well one. It's a great book. It's a great book. I took it to Nashville with me the first time I went, and yeah, that's amazing. You know, so he was Chet Atkins was sort of striking a blow in his own yeah. quiet, qualified way. It's an amazing thing, and it worked. But although having said that. There are aspects of the story which just sort of tell you about the state of attitudes then and now, that when they sent out his, his first few records to radio stations, they didn't put photographs with them. Yeah. The point was that they, that they were good country records and they would get played. And I guess then the people from RCA, or some of them at least, must have taken great delight in then saying, right, do you know who's singing this? Yeah, well, of course. Um, if you listen to something like Kiss an Angel, Good Morning, it's probably his most famous hit. And if you went into it like completely colorblind, I mean, you – you wouldn't think this is a necessarily think this is a black voice. Right, right. So in a sense, he he passed as almost like a white voice on country radio. I found him via Doug Psalm. Because is anybody right. going to San Antonio? Yes. Which is a great song which shares most of its melody with the Scooby Doo thing. <laughs> <laughs> is um wow. is is a is a track on that Doug Psalm record Super Session and his version's got Bob Dylan on the chorus. Yes. Which I found on, you know, Are You Ready for the Country, the Peter Doggett book. There was a compilation CD went with it, and that's on that. And the first time I heard that song, I thought, this is great, but it sounds like Scooby-Doo, was when I heard that. And then, ah, that's the Charlie Pride hit. Okay. And then went back and found it. But as you say, it's not like, he's God love him, but he's not up there with George Jones and Mill Haggard and all that. It's not, it's not canonical stuff, is it? But as good no. as it is, it isn't really- yeah, exactly. Well, anyway, farewell to Charlie Pride. Is anybody going to San Antonio or Phoenix, Arizona? Any place is all right as long as I can forget I've ever known her. And at this point, Mark, w- would you talk us through your highlights among recent arrivals in our library? Yeah, the, the last fortnight. So a week ago, as I said, Charlie Manson, Death Valley Dropouts by Ivor Davis, Daily Express, 3rd December. And he talks to some of the, the Manson family who are all hanging around there back at the Spahn Ranch, I think, by then. Sort of, you know, Charlie's in jail. Two or three others are in jail. Charlie had only just been arrested. We forget it took months for them to catch Charlie Manson. He was magnetic and his motions were like magic, one former cult member explained. Another added, the first time I heard him sing, it was like an angel. He wrote his own songs. The first time I saw him, he was petting a cat and he struck me as being so kind. So, so, so Never there, go on appearances. <laughs> there we go. Mm. Uh, leaping ahead to 1973, Vernon Gibbs, one of my favourite writers, for Essence magazine, visits the, the New York townhouse of Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson, who are great heroes of mine. And they, they, they always give a pretty good interview. Valerie says, we probably have the best relationship with Motown of anyone who's ever left them because they had been signed as kind of artists and producers. But then after they left, they continued to do a lot of work for Motown. And Nick Ashford says, 
when they first visited Motown, visited Detroit. We asked a cab driver to take us to Motown. He took us to these five little houses. And we said, no, we want the main building. <laughs> I love, love the idea of that. Very early Kirsty McColl interview, Sandy Robertson, Sounds, 1979, in which she says, mild things, I wouldn't fuck Richie Blackmore if he paid me £10 million. And I don't want to beat I you would. and McColl's daughter for the rest of my life in a way that people in a way that people think of me, you know. I, I'm very, very fond of Kirsty McColl. She's working at that point. She's in Croydon working for Exchange and Mart. I'm really... <laughs> it's good stuff. Next one's Mark Armand, very big Paul Morley interview, kind of early interview with Soft Cell from 1981. Paul Morley's very, very sceptical about this group. And he's, he's talking about futurism, because at that point, before, like... New romantics have been called new romantics. One of the terms tossed around for all of these new bands sort of appearing was futurist. They were using it themselves at Blitz or wherever. Mark Arman says, absolutely rightly, what futurism means to me is an Italian movement with fascist leanings. I don't understand why people call it futurist, it being their music. Well spotted, Mark. Yeah, he was, that was very on the case. Yeah, absolutely. It's smart stuff. Danny Weitzman, Early Weekly, 1989, interviewing the Beastie Boys. Now, this is just oh, around Paul's the time... Paul's Boutique period, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That album had just been released, which didn't sell well, was the thing which recast them as a really inventive hip-hop group. I mean, Well, it's been far more influential than Licensed to Ill. Absolutely. It? It's fantastic. I think it's a fantastic record. Amazing. But record. they're very funny in the interview, as usual. So Ad-Rock says, when the shit hits the fan, I'll be under the table. The tragedy, Mark, is, as I think I told you the other day, we have the audio of this interview that Danny sent me yeah. some some time ago. And unfortunately, it is it is an almost inaudible audio. Oh. It's just sort of chaotic. But it's almost tempting to add it just as a sort of... Well, uh, yeah, for the sure. spirit's own sake. <laughs> They've never... The great thing about the Beastie Boys is, and it remains the case largely... They've never done a straight interview in their lives. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's, a, there's, a, there's some amazing <laughs> there's some amazing footage of them being interviewed by Conan O'Brien on YouTube. <laughs> and they and they make up they make up this story that the support act on their tour, they're not gonna have a group, it's gonna be it's gonna be dog acts. And they're gonna perform in dogs. <laughs> and this is all just an absolute tissue of lies that they yeah, just yeah. made up, right? But Conan O'Brien is witty enough to go with it. And it's a ten minute interview about this completely invented thing about which of these sort of crufts esque dog tricks you're gonna see when you go and see the Beastie Boys. <laughs> and every everyone I know who went to interview the Beastie Boys would always come back with stuff like that. And the the key was to roll with it and make it be funny. Because if you acted up and said, Look, come on, answer the question. You were finished. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that Israel Horowitz died just the other day, who was the fam- the playwright and the father of, I think, Ad Rock. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That was one of the he, sort he's, of... He's, he's mentioned in this interview. He probably is. Because he had expressed yeah. disapproval of what his son had been writing. Right. <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the rampant misogyny. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure he wouldn't have approved yeah, of it. Well, no. anyway, so, so that crops up. It's a very interesting time for them. They've left Def Jam, obviously... There's a lot of bad feelings. Signed to Capital, yeah. yeah. Exactly, there's a lot of bad feeling lurking around by that. They talk in this interview about how Def Jam wanted to slot them into a certain bag to guarantee that they sell records. And 
you know, even though young guys, they were young guys, but they actually had a very powerful sense of their own artistic destiny in a certain sort of sense, I think. And what an incredible career they've had. I mean, I remember thinking with Paul's Boutique, there was a sort of sense that the Beastie Boys were some sort of almost like a novelty act and it was over and this record wasn't selling. But actually it was the platform for extraordinary work that they've done over the years. Absolutely. Right, coming up to this week, Tony Barrow, who was the Beatles publicist, writing Melody Maker in March 68, about Lennon of the Outrageous Beatles. This is a, four, a series of four articles about profiling each Beatle. Melody Maker claimed Tony Barrow had never written about them before. This is rubbish. Tony Barrow had been writing about them for KRLA Beats in Los Angeles for years. Anyway, he says things like, He is erratic in almost all things save the constantly progressive, vividly expressive musical product of his mind. His whole personality is as mobile and unstable as the poured forth thoughts which arrange themselves into the unsymmetrical lyrics of I Am the Walrus. <laughs> this is very right. 1968. Very 1968. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Austin, Austin Powers interviews John Lennon, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Barry Gibb being interviewed by In Dove for Phonograph Record, 1976. And this is interesting because it's just around the time of the Bee Gees reinvention to the areas of, kind of heavy R&B influence and so on and so forth. They just cut this album with Arif Mardin, yeah. which is actually it's a pretty fantastic record. He says, quite simply, he's the best producer in the world for us. In that studio with him is magic, which is kind of a really interesting thing to say. You know, Barry uh, Gibbs back, isn't he? We're doing well, these country versions. Well, of, indeed. Of... I mean, the other, the other thing is he, they didn't use Arif after that, but they used his influence. I think their next album, they, they produced themselves, but it sounds like an Arif Martin production. And it was all, was it all done in Florida, wasn't it? It was uh, very... They, that, they, they, they kind of pretty, a cri- did, but they did virtually everything done at Criteria yeah, for, a yeah, long, yeah. for a long time. Incredible records. I mean, I do think... It's easy to forget how, how fantastic those records were. That's true. I mean, he's also got this kind of slightly ghastly sort of self-aggrandizing sort of side to him. He says, myself, I'm the fourth largest shareholder in the Robert Stigwood organization, followed by Maurice and Eric Clapton. So he's a shareholder in the Robert Stigwood organization. Wow, that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. interesting fact. I was going to write, do something from this, but I won't because we're kind of running short time. But there's a very we've got a very interesting Nick Kent interview with Kevin Coyne, who's an artist who's retrospectively, I think, become more important in many people's minds than he certainly was regarded at the time. Mm-hmm. Big influence on people like John Lydon, for example. Yeah, um, great. It's great records. And even actually towards or relatively towards the end of his life, Kevin Coyne was making a pretty amazing records when he wanted to. Very interesting. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a late Kevin Coyne album called Room Full of Fools, I think it's yeah. called. Mm-hmm. By which point he was living in Germany, wasn't he? He went to live yes, in Rome. Hamburg. He lived in Hamburg, I think. Yeah. Which is quite sort or of Dusseldorf. crouty, repetitive, with this sort of weird pastoral English thing going on and a blues influence. I mean, they're the, they're the sort of three parts of it. And it's really, really good. But And the other thing about him I really like was he made a virtue of sort of age and experience. The, the records of a cranky old guy who's slightly mad, you know, yeah, and definitely. all the better for it. Yeah, well, <laughs> he says in this, he, he says, we'll talk about rock and roll. He says, Christ, it doesn't have to be adolescent music. It's got to grow up for Christ's sakes. That's go, what I believe, and that's exactly what I'm putting into practice. This is 1970. Yeah. His brother committed suicide, and he himself had a nervous breakdown, which is what drove him to Germany, actually, that... that, that 
he is dealing with areas of sort of mental health in a lot of what he he did. Absolutely. I would have liked Britpop, really, to be a bit more like Eastbourne Ladies and that sort of, that Kevin Coyne side, you know? yeah. Yeah, Which yeah, is sort of, sort of like weird, sort of slightly altered state social realism. A bit more of that and, and a bit less, you know, let's all go down the strand. And we would have been all right, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, sort of un- he's undervalued, Kevin. But seriously, that record, Room Full of Fools, anyone who's listening, if you got, I think mm. you'll find it on a streaming service or on YouTube. There's a track called I'm Wild from that record, which I heard in a record shop in New Orleans. And I went, what is this? And the fella said, it's Kevin Coyne. I said, it sounds a bit krauty. I'm a, I'm a wanker, right? So that's the sort of conversations I have in record <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a bit krauty. He went, it does sound a bit krauty. I said, what is this? Kevin Coyne, really? Yeah. Yeah, room full of fools. And it's honestly, you play I'm Wild and it's just, it's it's monstrous stuff. It's brilliant. There you okay, go. brilliant. Great recommendation. Moving on to 1980, we've just been talking about Mark Arman's take on the term futurism. This is Martin Ware of the Human League Mark I to Ronnie Gurr from Record Mirror. He says, that is taking what is essentially a very old-fashioned view of futurism, which is like people walking about like Michael Rennie in the, the day the earth stood still or something. That's not futurism. That's nothing to do with futurism at all. It's more nostalgic than anything I can think of. So there we have two people's views of the use of the term futurism <laughs> in one week. Wow, <laughs> um, the futurism. Carly Minogue and Jason Donovan interviewed by Chris Heath and Smash Hits in 1988. And basically the, the premise of the interview is, are they or aren't they doing it? <laughs> <laughs> basically, um, good uh, old smashes. That zenith of music. Yeah, yeah, well, I, it's, I love it. I, this, this is joy for me. Just, and she, Kylie says, "I don't know what Jason says. That's up to him. I just say maybe we are, maybe we aren't." And, and then she says, "Whenever we are pictured together, we are together in inverted commas. And when Jason's pictured with another girl, I'm always in inverted commas terribly upset." <laughs> <laughs> well, she's actually great. I mean, Kylie, the thing about Kylie is she's bright as anything, and mm. I, I enjoy reading them. Yeah. Last, very last thing, Metallica's James Hetfield to Stefan Shirazi in Kerrang! in 1992. And he's talking about his kind of sparring partner slash drummer, Lars Ulrich. And he says, Lars likes this rock and roll thing. He likes to hang out and drink all fucking night, and I'd rather get up and go fishing. Uh, <laughs> go, and, then he go, says, shoot, go and shoot something. Yes. <laughs> well, he says also ten years ago, I never thought I'd be listening to Waylon Jennings, which is what I'm into now. Country shit. I love the idea of James Hetfield listening to country. Music. Yeah, but there's not aesthetically. There's not much between Waylon Jennings and James Hetfield. <laughs> no, black it's baseball a, it, cap, black baseball cap, beard, station wagon, gun. It's the same basic they're, idea. They're rugged American men. <laughs> That's a very, very good point. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Uh, that's my lot. What about that's you great. two guys? I'll mention a couple of things very quickly. A new writer who's come on board, American writer Deanne Stillman. A uh, first piece we've added by her is from 2004. And it is about, or at least half about, Phil Spector going on trial in Los Angeles for, you know, the murder of Lana Clarks. But it's also about the trial of Robert Blake, the actor. So it's it's an interesting first piece. And we'll hope to add a bunch more stuff by her. And also just mention an interview that Cheryl Garrett did with Viv Albertine. I remember Viv coming along to one of our 
short-lived Rock's Back Pages album clubs. Must have been about 2013. So she would have been, and Cheryl mentions the book that was going to come out fairly soon, The Clothes, 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 Boys, but etc. It was best-selling, a real best-seller book. So it's, it's just a really interesting conversation with Viv on the eve of the publication of that excellent memoir. Over to you, Jasper. I will also mention just two things, first of which is Shakira, interviewed by Lisa Verico in 2002, right as she's about to release or has released her first English language record, having been a you know huge star in her native Latin America. She's Colombian. And it's interesting because apparently against her record company's advice, she delayed the album's launch for two years while she taught herself English from a dictionary and wrote all the songs herself. And she says, I didn't want other people to write my songs for me. So I bought a couple of English rhyming dictionaries and read poetry and authors like Leonard Cohen and Walt Whitman. Eventually, I found a way to express my ideas in English, which I think is fabulous. That's interesting. I think it's great. She comes off, you know, in in an article that's kind of, you know, it's in the Times and it's kind of trying to, you know, doing that very classic, like she's hot and and wears tight leather trousers and all this kind of thing. And it's about her her partnership as she's like the Latin American posh and Bex and blah, 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 blah. But actually... She's talking about Leonard Cohen and Walt Whitman, yeah, which I rather like. You know, I've read a few interviews with her, and she's actually a very interesting woman. Yeah. Well, funny because we've just started transcribing our audio interviews, which is going to take probably years, but it's just a it's just a little project that's underway. One of them that was done the other day was Gavin Martin's interview with Shakira, and I just I listened to it, and it was she's she's just great. I mean, one of the things that Gavin asked her is apparently you learn you learn to sort of speak English by listening to and reading the lyrics of Bob Dylan. And uh, so she she's, she's just comes across so so well in this. In this. He's a really interesting person. So that's Shakira Shakira. Oh, baby, when you talk like that, you make a woman go mad. So be wise and keep on reading the signs of my body. I'm on tonight, you know my hips don't lie. I'm starting to feel it's right, all the attraction. And then the other thing, this is a sort of early Christmas present for our colleague Paul. This is a, <laughs> this is a review of uh, Coldplay's Milo Zoloto in 2011. <laughs> I'm going to explain that is that Paul despises, well, none of us are particularly fond of Coldplay, but Paul sort of viscerally despises them. I mean, so we mock him yes, all the time. Yes, he but... develops hives yes. when he <laughs> does so, so we we mischievously just started to sort of, the three of us, when we were still in the office, started to pretend we really liked Coldplay, didn't we? And we'd play Coldplay at, at, at any possible opportunity just to see what would happen to uh, Paul. Uh, actually, on the subject of the Beastie Boys, if you really want to see something horrifying, you can see Coldplay doing a ballad version of Beastie Boys' Fight right for Your Right to party. party. It's there on YouTube, and it's just possibly the most <laughs> ghastly thing you'll ever see in your life. <laughs> this is a very, very funny review by Wyndham Wallace in The Quietus, and it just the whole thing is just sarcastic from start to finish. Music is art, but Muzak is science, and Coldplay are technicians of the highest order. Yeah, Not so much... Not so much writing songs as building grand monuments of the 21st century out of the detritus of modern day life. But that's all true. (laughs) I once had to make a film for the BBC, a short film for the BBC about why I was a Coldplay sceptic. That's what your licence fee money used to go on. And and I made the point, but the point is, if you sort of let yourself go and just kind of go with it, they make you feel like you're in an advert. 
And, Listening and to the these person... 11 songs is like watching a car commercial that's 45 go, minutes long. There you go. It's one of those adverts that goes from like, a, you know, a baby being born, a Maasai tribesman, someone having a cappuccino, right? And then someone, <laughs> di- and someone diving in the sea. And then someone, and, and then someone gets, a, gets a CD out, you know, that, that thing, that have a modernity. Yeah. And then somehow it's all about your iPhone, right? Yeah. Coldplay were seemingly created to do exactly that job, right? And, and <laughs> as I say, if you want to... I had this phase where if I was driving along and I wanted to feel somehow that I was doing something important, if I put Coldplay on, it worked a treat. <laughs> well, uh, another another yeah. recommendation for yeah. this. <clears throat> passion is Coldplay's passion. Seriously, Milo Zoloto tugs the heartstrings like it's dragging a sofa upstairs, and this is as deep as a luxury bathtub from home base. That's exactly right. Exactly. Yeah, so you're on the same same brilliant. exact wavelength. I just thought it was a very funny review. That's, that's fantastic. That's good. On that note, I think we really have to draw things to a conclusion because, as usual, we've gone way way over time. <laughs> but that's because we're having so much fun. John, you've been a wonderful guest. Thank you yeah. so much for Thank joining you again. us. Thank you again. You know, good luck with all your future endeavours and your tremendous work on The Guardian. And, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe we'll sort of touch base after the 1st of January 2021 and see what kind of state the country's in at that point. Oh no, I'll, um, I'll, I'll be in Dover surrounded by lorries. That's already, I've already yeah. Anywhere but Westminster. Dover special. You definitely Dover will special. be there. If you can get Dover there, special. if you can even get there. Yeah, Through exactly. the Kent border. Yeah, exactly. Fighting your way to Dover. Anyway, Mark, would you kindly talk us out? Yeah, well, let it... me just say, we will, we will not be back until I think the 7th of January when we have the legendary producer... John Simon joining us from America. That should be interesting. And Martin Collier, our colleague, will be joining us for that. But just wishing everybody happy holidays, non-denominational happy holidays. Absolutely. And Mark, if you would yeah, talk us out with the third and last Macca clip. Yeah, I, it, it's actually, it's him talking about what he's listening to and you know the degree to which he's influenced or otherwise by sort of current popular music. And on that happy note, I think we'll just say goodbye to you all. And as Barney says, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Cheers. Thanks again, John. Bye. You know, I like to listen to like a lot of new stuff. It doesn't influence me that much, as much as they influence each other. Obviously, they, they do that more than me because I've been going longer and I've been influenced by more music because uh, my musical influences go right back to, uh, well, you know, to real old films and to old bands and stuff and brass bands and things like that, which I'm sure they're not that interested in. But... Uh, it's good, you know, I, I like all kinds of music myself, and that includes, like, a lot of new wave. That was Paul McCartney in conversation with John Tobler in 1980, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest John Harris. Visit his website at johnharris.me.uk. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Happy holidays. Is anybody going to San Antonio or Phoenix, Arizona?
With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 